This is an ABC podcast. Platypus have to be one of the strangest looking creatures on Earth. So much so that when Europeans first came across them in Australia, the platypus became part of a scientific debate. The debate revolved around whether this funny-looking duckbill creature was real or just an elaborate hoax. Well, we all know they definitely do exist, but still, not many Australians have seen platypus in the wild. Oh, it's, uh, it just gets your heart going because it's like, oh my God, like, they're so beautiful, they're so odd, but they're just so elusive. Lily Pollard knows where to find platypus near her in the Macquarie Rivulet in the Ilwara region of New South Wales. And when she does see them, it always gives her a thrill. But now a property investor wants to develop that area to build 227 homes. And citizen scientists are furious the developer refuses to acknowledge the animal exists. On Australia Wide Today, the platypus controversy that's headed to the courts. I'm Sinead Mangan, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. In breaking news today, a story that feels like it's been pulled straight from 2021. An aged care facility in Alice Springs has gone into lockdown as it grapples with a significant COVID outbreak amongst residents and staff. Our reporter Lee Robinson is covering the story and he joins me now. Lee, what's the situation at this aged care facility? G'day Sinead. Uh, Well, as of this morning, 24 cases have been recorded among residents at the Old Timers Village in Alice Springs. There's also four infections among staff. Given there's only 68 beds at the facility, it's quite a significant number, more than a third of residents impacted uh, and who have tested positive now. The facility have said that most of the residents aren't displaying symptoms, but at least one has uh, already been taken to uh, to hospital uh, for further observations. Uh, they've picked it up uh, dur- during their uh, routine rat testing uh, that they've been conducting on all staff uh, and residents uh, at the facility, uh, and they said that they're now uh, implementing an outbreak management plan and working with the Northern Territory and Commonwealth Health Authorities to ensure that they're managing the situation effectively. In terms of health officials, how concerned are they, because they have locked the facility down, are the residents fully vaxxed? Where are they in all of that? Well, the Old Timers Village uh, have said that almost all of the residents are fully vaccinated and that uh, gives them reason to believe that while there have been a number of positive cases, for the most part, the symptoms have been less harsh and and sometimes there's been no symptoms at all. However, COVID is always a concern for aged care and they've said that they're particularly concerned about the prevalence of uh, both COVID and uh, the flu uh, that's running through the community at this time as well. It looks like in Australia we're going into an eighth wave. How is the NT travelling in terms of COVID cases? Well, I think like the rest of Australia, we are seeing a a spike in numbers. The Old Timers Village have said there uh, seems to be uh, a rise in COVID in the community. However, that can be very hard to determine, of course, because there is no more mandatory reporting of COVID. Uh, So we don't know the exact number of cases. uh, But one good indicator that has being used around the country is uh, an increase that has been seen in the prescription of antiviral medications 
medications that are used to treat COVID. Uh, so that helps uh, give a, a clearer picture of the fact that the numbers are rising, not just in the Northern Territory, but across WA, New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. We're seeing similar stories of a rising cases as well. Lee, do you think this will mean that we'll see like a reignition of some of those health campaigns that we we were all became very familiar with in 21? Mm, you have to really cast your mind back to a couple of years ago when those messages were all around. And uh, there are uh, some uh, who are warning about a sort of COVID Christmas. And uh, just moments ago, I got off the phone to Sue Shearer, who's the CEO for Council of the Aging in the Northern Territory. And she was pushing for the government to reignite a, a health uh, campaign to encourage people to do things like wash their hands, to wear a mask when in uh, crowded social settings, uh, as well as just monitoring uh, themselves for the symptoms of COVID, which many might have uh, forgotten about or put behind them because it does seem like this was all in the past. And for a town like Alice Springs with, with vulnerable people in the community, how have they responded to the news? Yeah, well, this news is just breaking uh, now, but uh, Sue Shearer from the Council of the Aging has said she is particularly concerned and and many family members uh, would be concerned about uh, those residents living in the facility and uh, just across uh, the Northern Territory, given our population is more vulnerable and uh, the many Indigenous people living in the Northern Territory, many of them have uh, pre-existing health conditions which can mean uh, what would be, um, you know, a COVID case easy to overcome for many people uh, can be more complicated for others. And so there are those concerns that uh, COVID could have a really significant impact on the community. Lee Robinson, thanks for bringing us up to date on Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. ABC Australia Wide. If you're sick, where do you want to be? Probably not hundreds of Ks from home, away from friends, family and your support network. Unfortunately, that's the case for many Outback Queensland residents who are given a diagnosis and presented with two options. Travel or move 10 hours away to receive treatment. Julia Andre has this report. When Mount Isa resident Robin Need isn't strapped to a chair receiving life-saving dialysis treatment, she spends hours wandering aimlessly around the streets of Townsville without a familiar face to chat to. You know, Mount Isa's my home, so why do I have to move out of there and come down to Townsville to wait? She's one of 30 people on the Northwest Hospital and Health Services wait list to access dialysis treatment in Mount Isa. To receive the treatment, she's been forced to move to Townsville. Hundreds of kilometres away from her home, she's terrified that she will die alone without her loved ones by her side. You're telling me that we have to go down to Townsville and wait for a seat to come back to Mount Isa. And like how many years... Is that? I said, so we've got to be there in Townsville sitting down and wishing that someone's hurry up and die. You know, you wouldn't wish that upon anybody, really, you know. Dialysis is used to treat chronic kidney disease by removing extra fluid and waste products from a patient's blood. 
Robin was completing treatment from her home, but when her kidney issues worsened, she was forced to move to Townsville. With no indication of when a chair will free up for her in Mount Isa, Robin is in a lonely limbo. My grannies kept ringing me over time, you know, Nana, when are you going to come back? And and I was thinking, oh my God, don't even go there, Baba, you know. Indigenous Australian adults are twice as likely as non-Indigenous adults to have chronic kidney disease. Uh, you know, the burden of kidney disease, particularly in rural and remote communities, and particularly among our First Nations people, is unacceptably high in Queensland. That's Dr Alex Dunn. He's the president of the Rural Doctors Association of Queensland. There are currently 16 operational renal chairs across the Northwest Queensland Health District, with two extra chairs slated for both Mornington Island and Doomadgee. You know, it's, it's a lifelong and life-saving commitment. Having that delivered in your community or close to your community has a much more positive outcome for patients than being, I guess, dislocated from their support networks. It can really impact on someone's mental health when they don't have those supports around. And at times, people can disengage from treatment as well, which is an absolute travesty. Back in Mount Isa, Robin's older sister, Evelyn, has a sense of deja vu. No. It's unfair. In 2014, her husband was forced to move to Townsville from Mount Isa to receive dialysis. Months later, he died in Townsville without his wife or son by his side. Evelyn's worried the same thing will happen to Robin. She wants to be home now, closer to me, and I want to be closer to her, you know, for the sake of our children and son. We're very close in the family where we come from and, you know, Evelyn believes the lack of dialysis chairs across the region is putting undue pressure on Mount Isa's already strained service. We understand what's right from wrong and at the moment what's going on, but it's not fair what happened, you know. Mount Isa resident Robin Need, ending that story from Julia Andre. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Regional residents are used to fighting against unwanted development, but for some, they've also fought to keep poker machines out of their rural communities. In Victoria's Macedon Ranges, Romsey residents won a lengthy legal battle 15 years ago when they successfully stopped an attempt to install 30 poker machines in the local pub. But now they're gearing up for another round with a new bid underway to redevelop and reopen the local pub with 50 gambling machines. Shannon Schubert has this story. In the sleepy town of Romsey, 55 kilometres northwest of Melbourne, residents are shocked about another bid for pokies in their town. The local football netball club is seeking to redevelop and reopen the shuttered Romsey Hotel, but with one condition. It wants to install 50 pokey machines. It's a case of history repeating itself for Sue Kirkgaard, who led a community push against pokies at the same pub 15 years ago. The pokies, you go inside a room where there's ding, ding, and there's bling, bling, and that's not what people want around here. If they they wanted that, they would have stayed in Melbourne. She says the town has changed a lot in recent years, with an influx of young families moving into the area. We've got a lot of young families, particularly double-income families. They've got jobs in the city, you know, they're time-poor, and they need things for kids, places to walk and go out. While the growing community still doesn't want pokey machines in Romsey, 
Some residents do want to see the pub reopened. I think it's great for the town. It's been a long time without a pub. I'm only new to the area and it's, it's strange to not have a pub in a town like Romsey. A previous application for pokies at the Romsey Hotel triggered a five-year legal battle where the Macedon Rangers Shire Council took publican Jim Hogan to the Supreme Court 15 years ago. The council spent $650,000 fighting the pokies and even held a local plebiscite to gauge public concern. But this time, it's the Romsey Football Netball Club putting its hand up to run the hotel and asking for 50 pokey machines. Resident Mark Spiker says he isn't anti-gambling or anti-pokies, but he doesn't think it's appropriate. It worries me when clubs get involved in this. When you look at the AFL clubs, they're diversifying out of pokey machines as they've seen the damage it does to communities and the expectation from their members. So it surprises me that a, a club would want to do that. He worries about a lack of local community services. I worry about, about those vulnerable people, worry about the impact it's going to have on them, worried about the community services that are going to be needed to look after these people should they fall into trouble. Sandra Chestnut says the social cost outweighs any potential economic benefit. Social problems that can be a result of gambling, and that is homelessness could actually increase. People are barely able to keep their homes as it is, barely able to pay the exorbitant rents that are being charged. I don't know where this extra money is coming from to put through poker machines. The ABC reached out to both the Romsey Football Netball Club and the owner of the hotel, Jim Hogan, but both declined to comment. In its application, the Football Netball Club says it would return profits to the local community and it claimed a survey of 400 residents found 77% support the proposed development. But nearly half of all respondents opposed pokies being part of the redevelopment. Shannon Schubert reporting there. This is ABC Australia Wide. The elusive platypus is at the centre of a court kerfuffle in regional New South Wales, which is really not your average court controversy. A housing developer and a local shire council have come to loggerheads over whether or not two decades of citizen science should be reason enough to reject plans to build a major new housing development. And the controversy has sparked a lot of anger in the community. From New South Wales Loire region, Kelly Fuller reports. For professional bodyboard rider and environmentalist Lily Pollard, spotting platypus in their natural habitat is one of life's true delights. Oh, it's, uh, it just gets your heart going because it's like, oh my God, like they're so beautiful, they're so odd, but they're just so elusive. Like, yeah, I've been to various dams and everywhere around Australia pretty much. On my travels, I'm like, okay, I'm going to spot a platypus. One place she's seen them is in the Macquarie Rivulet in Calderwood in the Illawarra, near a major housing expansion. I feel a little bit attached to this little platypus. Um, it's actually the first one I ever saw in the wild. More than a decade ago, the New South Wales government granted permission for 4,800 homes to be built in an area close to Albion Park, then known mostly for dairy farming. So far, around 1,200 homes have been built. Benort and Calderwood want to add another 227 homes and bridge crossing. Shell Harbour Council has rejected the plan and the developer is taking the council to the Land and Environment Court. The courts allowed the developer to provide additional information about the project and it's an ecologist report uploaded to the council's website that's fired up the community. In response to concerns about its impact on platypus habitat, the developer released an ecologist report dismissing citizen science reports of the animal in the area as unreliable. 
and after a two-and-a-half-hour field study, found there's no conclusive evidence of the animal in the area. So I was just fuming that, <laughs> that they um, wouldn't recognise that this platypus exists. So I was like, I'm going out tonight. It's going to be there because I know this little platypus. Is there. It's in an awesome little spot. It took two hours <laughs> until I saw her last night and she was very subtle. And she, at first I thought she was a, um, a tiny little water rat because she was so subtle. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe it's just a water rat. And then she come in closer to check me out and I got, oh, I was so excited. I was like, there she is. She's still here. She's still safe. This is where... She's meant to be. Other citizen scientists like Jessica Whitaker have also raised concerns. Look, I'm a little bit dismayed that they've slandered the good name of citizen scientists. I've been participating in citizen science just as someone with interest and experience in working in the environment, not as someone who's necessarily qualified. And I don't see why people's observations that they've recorded in good faith can be written off so easily. Ecology and water researcher Associate Professor Ian Wright from Western Sydney University says he's very uncomfortable with the brief and cursory survey provided by the developer. I think it needs repeated visits. And I think it needs more precise methods. For example, this is a perfect example for using eDNA, which can detect the presence of platypus. But you would do it on multiple locations at multiple sites before drawing a conclusion. Dr Wright says community groups often know regions better than expert witnesses hired by companies to prepare reports. We are going to see the tide turn here. The planet's in trouble. We really need to empower the community. And it does upset me when I hear views that are dismissive of community evidence. He's also emphasised the importance of courts carefully considering evidence from community groups and citizen scientists when weighing up planning proposals. This is a really important issue. What is the admissibility of expert versus citizen evidence? in court and there is a growing recognition that citizen science is valid if they do it appropriately, follow a detailed, repeatable methodology. Science and Expert Advisory Director of the Environmental Defender's Office, Sharon Goldstein, says it would be dangerous to dismiss citizen science. Platypus in particular is a species that has relied on citizen science and observations being brought to public awareness. So absolutely dismiss it at the peril of understanding species and just wiping out more environments and habitats that we just can't afford to do. Dr Goldstein stressed all areas of expertise should be weighed up. We need more information that's good and that state stamps, not less. And if we try and silence communities, we're missing such a massive piece of knowledge over prescribed surveys. They're rapid assessment tools and if we put those over the experience of communities and we, instead of using them both together, that's a, a really dangerous trajectory. The developer and ecology company were contacted for a response but said as the matter is before the courts, they will not comment at this time. Illawarra reporter Kelly Fuller there. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Have you ever smelt a durian fruit? I have. 
They're pretty large. They're a spiky fruit and with the smell that's so offensive, some countries actually ban them on public transport and in hotels. And while that diabolic smell might not thrill you or me, it's good news for durian farmers as it signifies a fruit that's ripe for the picking. Our reporter Matt Brown visited durian farmer Han Xiong Si as harvest season kicks off in the Northern Territory. I can smell it, Han. I can smell these durians. We're standing in front of a trailer packed with your durians. Tell us what's in front of us here. Oh, we've got some spiky fruit that smells awesome when you walk up to the shed. This <laughs> morning was very fragrant. I could smell it from a mile away. And when you get closer, uh, the, the salvation starts with the mouth starts drooling. <laughs> How do you describe the smell? Uh, it is a, uh, it's a mixture of... <laughs> Really strong garlic and, and, you know, a bit of old socks, but it's a very fragrantly pleasant smell for me. Some people say, well, have a little bit of sulfuric smell, like, like maybe a leaking gas tap <laughs> from a leaking gas bottle. <laughs> and, and, yeah, so it, it's, it's, for us and most Asian, it's, it's a fragrance that we, we, we would, you know, kind of linger towards and, you know, trace towards really quickly. It makes for a pungent shed, that is for sure. And these are some of your first for the season. They are tree ripened. Yep. How is your season shaping up this year? We are looking at close to maybe 15 tonnes, so more than last year. And we've got one massive durian here. We weighed it earlier. Mm-hmm. Over three kilos. 3.8, I believe. 3.8. Yeah. Do they get much bigger than that? They do in, in other countries. I think the largest we've ever had is about four and a half. Uh, but yeah, this was a, a big boy or girl. <laughs> uh, she smells great. And yeah, I just picked it up this morning. I just drove past her and I was like, whoa, she's big. <laughs> and I went down and picked it up and tagged her. And where are all these durians off to? Uh, most of it will be going to Sydney and Melbourne in, on Wednesday onwards. And what are prices like for you? So our premium, premium grade durian is sitting at about $32 a kilo wholesale. So mark up anything beyond that is probably about close to forty forty five dollars at the retail, and our uh, normal durian is sitting closer towards about twenty to twenty two dollars a kilo. Okay, and just looking at these durians, I mean they are big, they are so spiky, and and that famous smell. So I'm sort of just amazed at how some of them have clearly been attacked by birds. Yeah, what what bird is getting through this? ginormous spiky fruit uh well we have getting something a little bit more um cockatoos and corellas right. mostly cockatoos are, are, are attacking these they just like to attack a particular variety i guess because it's more fragrant and a different smell smell than than the uh the, the other durians and unfortunately it is our premium grade one that we, <laughs> that, we that we that we try to sell and promote we're getting a fair more of that being attacked your best variety is, is the one they're targeting correct They've developed a taste for your... Ch- yes, no, nothing else, just that variety I've noticed, and unfortunately it's a bit annoying. How are they doing it? That's what gets me, because if they I was ha- a bird, I wouldn't want to sit on that fruit. It's so spiky. They have, I guess, steel of teeth, steel of mouth to bite through it. They are pretty ingenuous, and yeah, they, they, they like to nibble yep. here and there, and unfortunately they don't want to finish all fruit. All righty then. I think we've reached that time. This is, this, is, this is a story I get to do about once a year. Yep. I open up a durian. And, and let's see how long Matt survives without gagging. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go get one. Hang on a second.
There's a real secret, isn't there, to, to cutting them open? Yeah, there is. Uh, so there are dedicated lines here. They're like fault lines. So you can actually use a pair of knife, secateurs or anything just to crack it open. So we'll grab it here. You see how soft it is? It's delicate. Can you grab a little segment and I guess tell our audience what makes durian special and what you look for in terms of flavour in durian? Okay. So for durian, we, we, generally it is quite soft. We, that's what you want to do, very soft. It also uh, has to be a very strong pungent smell. So once we consume it, we eat it, uh, it, it, is, it is very... Um, I'll grab a piece too. Ooh, yep, yep here that. we go. So you eat it <laughs> and it's... Um, yeah, so it has that, that really oniony taste, really onion skin flavour. Um, it's got that sulfuric taste. And, and smooth. Smooth. It's very smooth and it's very sweet. It's, the taste is very different to the smell. Yeah. It's a lot more like a custardy... Dessert. That's why they dessert, put it yeah. in ice cream. Yes. But funny part, they also put it in hot pots. And, <laughs> and, and pizzas in some Asian countries. No wonder, hey, no wonder the cockatoos. They've, they've worked it out. They, they're picking the most expensive fruit in town. <laughs> move over mangoes, move over rambutans and... Water apples, it's durian. <laughs> Always good to see you, Han. Thanks for sharing some durian. No, thanks. We'll finish this one off here. I have to say, give me a rambutan any day. Durian farmer Han Shung Si talking to our reporter in the Northern Territory, Matt Bran. And that wraps up Australia Wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.